The prayer we've just sung reminds us once again that what we most desire to happen in our lives as individuals and as members of the body of Christ here is something only God can do. And that is what gives us joy to see Him at work among us. We've been studying 1 John together, and this morning the Apostle John begins our text addressing us with the word, Beloved. Last week, it was my little children. The apostle's tender care and love for his readers are what move him to write what he does. The spiritual discernment that he's calling for doesn't rise from his love for theological debate. It comes from love for his readers, marked by fatherly concern that we not be led astray by fraudulent Christianity. Distortions of the gospel do real harm to people. So genuine love does not look the other way, or worse yet, modify the gospel to accommodate the lies. I think it's really important for us to understand that in Christianity, love and truth go together. And that, Paul, that, that John, as well as the other apostles, is, is motivated by love for people. Sin, by its very nature, does us harm when we engage in it. Falsehood, by its very nature, does us harm. And those who truly love us want to turn our minds to the truth. So, so far, John has taught us that the gospel of Jesus roots itself in historical realities and produces fellowship, having in common among all believers with God through Jesus. Those who have genuine fellowship with God walk in the light. They have an aversion to sin that leads them to avoid it, to fight against it. And when they sin, not to minimize it or rationalize it or deny it. Instead, they confess it. And God forgives them and cleanses them, thus restoring the fellowship with Him and with others. And what grows out of that cleansing results not just in fellowship with God, but fellowship with other believers. And that's one of the easiest ways to tell who's really right with God. How do they get along with other people? So now John is going to elaborate the nature of that fellowship. It is a fellowship marked by love. The same kind of love that John displays toward those that he writes. So he begins with the word beloved. Follow with me as I read in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because darkness has blinded his eyes. Really simple, 
uh, outline, if you will, of this text this morning. In verse 7, we're going to look at an old commandment to love. Second, in verse 8, a new commandment to love. We're going to explore what makes it new. And then finally, verses 9 through 11, the test of love, fitting into the whole theme that John is developing, distinguishing between genuine Christianity and fraudulent Christianity. First, consider with me uh, Paul. I mean, I keep saying Paul. So if I say Paul anymore, unless it's from an Pauline epistle, you know that I mean John. Um, they were friends. An old commandment to love, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. So, just how old is this command to love? Well, its roots are actually ancient. Listen to Jesus' answer to the question about the greatest commandment of all. In Matthew 22, he says, He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What Jesus is doing is citing words from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus 19. Here's the original context in Deuteronomy 6, from the great, we call the great Shema. Shema is the Hebrew for hear, which means not only to hear, but to listen to, to obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he goes on to talk about the commands that he has given the people of Israel and how parents are duty-bound to God to be teaching this to their children. Uh, When they lie down, when they rise up, when they walk in the way, they're to make it the centerpiece of their life. It's a way of expressing their love for God. The love your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus 19. Specifically these verses, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, as you look at Leviticus 19, you find that this is not the only display of love for neighbor. There are other commands that show your love for your neighbor. Things like leaving the corners of your field for the poor and the sojourner. Things like don't steal, don't deal falsely, don't lie, don't swear falsely by God's name, don't make Him party to your lies or cheating others in some kind of business deal or in court. Don't oppress or rob your neighbor. Don't withhold pay from your hired worker. Don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. In other words, don't take advantage of people's vulnerabilities. Don't do injustice in court. Don't show partiality to the poor or to the rich. Don't slander and don't hold a grudge. And then it ends up with the verses that we just read. And the repeated reason for living this way toward our 
fellow man is, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. In other words, his very character demands that if we say we're his people, we're supposed to live this way. If you really love and fear God, you will treat your neighbor with love. And treating your neighbor with love displays itself in all these arenas of life where you're not taking advantage of him. You're not um, cheating him. You're not lying about him. You're not doing him harm. You're not even hating him in your heart because of something he did to you. You're, you're going to go talk to him and, and work it out rather than it poisoning your soul. Well, did this apply only to the Jewish neighbors? And that was the question that was raised because in the Old Testament, the Jews are kept very separate from the Gentiles for a lot of reasons. Um, and we might ask in the church age, does this apply now only to fellow church members? In other words, it's the, the test of love or the sphere of love to be just those that are among God's people. It definitely ought to be there. Um, ought to be in your family, ought to be in your church, but does it go any further than that? Well, a lawyer asked Jesus that very question. After Jesus has talked about loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God supremely, loving your neighbor as yourself, the lawyer essentially asks, he says, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? And it says he was trying to justify himself. He was trying to justify the kind of life he was living. Well, Jesus answered with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's going to give the parable, and then he's going to answer with a question. Jesus loved to answer with a question, a question that would probe where your heart really was. And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you're well familiar with it. The man who was um, on the road was attacked by bandits, is beaten, left for dead, all his stuff uh, taken and a priest walks by him on that same road, passes by on the other side. He doesn't want to defile himself. A Levite does the same thing. And finally, a Samaritan, which would have been the despised people for Jews. They were mixed race, mixed religion. Uh, the last person in the world you expect to show love, the Samaritan helped him out, uh, bound up his wounds, took him to an inn, uh, paid for him to stay there, and told the innkeeper, I'll pay whatever... Uh, else is incurred in terms of cost. And Jesus then asked the question, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Did you notice what Jesus did? He flips the question the question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked, who proved to be a neighbor? Who proved to be a friend to the injured man? To whom should I show love then? If I'm looking at what Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, anyone in need, and whatever it costs me. The irony in the parable is that the Samaritan man, despised the man of mixed race and mixed religion, showed the love that the law of God called for, while the priest, who taught the law and led in worship, and the Levite, who is of the tribe that's supposed to oversee the worship of God, love of God expressed, utterly failed to do so. So Jesus' parable teaches that love for others is not limited to your family 
or friends or your culture or your race or even your religion. Leviticus 19, when it was laying out all the ways that we are to show love to our neighbor in that original context, remember the corners of the field left for the poor? They are left not only for the poor, but for the sojourner. A sojourner is somebody staying in your country who's not from your country. Somebody who is, by the very nature of being away from home, uh, is, is at risk. And so even all the way back to the origin of this command to love, you see this expansiveness in love. Now, why, why would Jesus' parable teach this expansiveness? Why is it consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures? Well, because human beings are made in God's image. That goes all the way back to Genesis, who we are is created in God's image. Sinful human beings are made in God's image because all human beings but Jesus are sinful. Jesus showed love to us by laying down his life for us while we were still sinners, enemies of God. We are to display the same kind of love. This expands our understanding of the old command to love consistent with the Old Testament text. So it's not that Jesus was distorting what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant taught, Jesus is clarifying. Jesus is applying what it taught. So this raises the question for us as we think about our own lives. What, what, needs, what needs do you notice around you? You know, sometimes we don't meet needs because we don't even see them. It, it, it means that I can't like isolate myself from other people. It means that I've got to be moving among them uh, the, the best that I can. There comes a time in life sometimes where I'm shut in, where I can't, can't interact as much. But, but in my interactions of life, and a lot of us have a lot of interactions, everything from our family members to our coworkers, um, to people that we meet when we're purchasing groceries or other kinds of things, our, our, our literal neighbors on our street, People that we pass by. I've ever sat at a, at a, a stop. I'm sure I, I know that I've talked about this before, but standing at a, a sitting at a stoplight, wanting it to change, it seems like it's forever, but watching the people, particularly the people that are turning left across your path, and, and you get just a quick glimpse through uh, the side window, and you, and you see their face, and they're focused on driving, and I find myself wondering, I wonder what that person's name is. I wonder what their life is like. I wonder what burdens they're carrying. I, I wonder what makes them... And, and it's like, I mean, you can't stop and ask them. We're, we're in our little boxes, right? Waving at each other in our boxes. Um, but, but these are real people. And as a, as a city expands and, um, you know, whenever you fly and you see this vast expanse of houses and um, representative of of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people, many of whom or most of whom you've never met in your life and never will, and you think about their lives and you think about their needs, well, it, it's one thing to feel that. Um, take that feeling, that curiosity, now apply it to the person that's next to you in church. 
Apply it, if you're a kid still a dependent at home, apply it to your parents, to your brother and your sister. Husbands, wives, apply it to your closest neighbor of all. We have so many opportunities, so many needs that are around us. I mean, when you walk through the aisles and you're meeting people, pick up on those that seem downcast and that are struggling, on those perhaps that you knew uh, were ill or are struggling with illness and, and show some kind of care for them. God's will for you is to love him and to love your neighbor as yourself. God's call is for us to leave the prison of a self-centered life, and sin is driven by self-centeredness, and and to live a life of righteousness that expresses love for our fellow human beings. It's an old, old commandment. It's in the word that those who knew the scriptures had received. But John tells us this is also a new commandment to love in verse 8, and it, it raises our que- the question for us, like, in what way is it new? I mean, it does feel like John's doing riddles on us, and, and, and in what way is it new? And we want to explore that. So he writes at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And those words, true light, caught my eye and I said, I've seen that before. I've seen that somewhere before. And it was in John's writings, John chapter 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So the true light is a way of referring to Jesus and his influence what Jesus brought to bring into our world when he was incarnate and he came and he died for our sins and rose again. So that whole beginning of the gospel of John with light shining in darkness and Jesus being the center of that light. So John is not the one introducing something new. It's not something new in AD 90s about this command. What made it new was what Jesus brought. It's true in him and in you, because the true light's already shining. John's language is the language Jesus himself used in teaching his disciples about the significance of the sacrifice he was about to make when he was teaching them on the night of the Last Supper, the night he was arrested, the night he went to trial, the night before his crucifixion. Listen to how closely Jesus wove together the themes that John has been teaching us in this epistle, such as keeping God's commandments, loving people, and fruitfulness as proof of discipleship. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Later that evening in John 15, he says, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So when John says, this is true in you and, I mean, true in him and in you, it's, it's expressing that you have a connection with Jesus Christ, a living connection with Jesus Christ, and, it, and it's expressing something that's true on the inside of you. It's in you. It's, it's tapping into the reality that true believers are born again. They're regenerate. They, are, they have the life of God in the soul of man. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This love It's not just I'm trying to meet the grade. I'm trying to keep the commandments. The love is coming from in you. It's in Him, in Jesus. And when you trust in Him, He gives us the Spirit. And His love is in you. And then He describes a process that's going on because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. There's this progressive sanctification of the believer as he becomes more and more like Jesus. He's shining out the light of Jesus through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Christ gives the Spirit to anyone that is in Him, anyone that is trusting in Him, a truly regenerate person, a a person who has God's life in him, a a born-again person, grows, and as he does, He produces the fruit of love. He lives more and more like Jesus. His or her life takes on the character quality of self-sacrificing love more and more instead of a life just lived for yourself where it's all about me. It's all about yourself. It's all about how you can you know, reach your goals, how you can accomplish, you know, gather your wealth and, and, and feather your nest and make your name great. The fruit of the Spirit and fruit, see, fruit grows from something that's alive. The fruit of the Spirit begins with love. Now, part of what makes the command to love new is that Jesus set the pattern for it as I have loved you. Self-sacrificing love. Love for people, love for sinners that doesn't condone their sin, but dies for their sin. Dies to rescue them from their sin. But there's more. This love is planted in a believer by Christ, grows by the power of the Spirit. The believer's love shines Because Christ, the light, has made him or her a child of light. God is light. His children shine light too. And light shines through love. Fulfills the commandments of God. When we think, I mean, this imagery works so well. If you're thinking about a cold, dark night and you're you're, you're out in the dark, you're out in the cold, and, and you see a home 
filled with light and you look through the windows and you see a family gathered there and maybe they're celebrating a meal together or, or whatever. There's a warmth to it. There's a love to it. The love and the light go together. Rejection, depression, being cut off, darkness. Knowing people, um, having those relationships where you know each other and you love each other and you express that, that's in the light. Jesus commands his disciples to preach the gospel to all creation and to make disciples, make followers and learners of him from all ethnicities. His love is as wide as the world. Just as John has already noted in our text from last week that Christ cleanses us from sin, and not our sins only, but also the sins of the whole world. This, this works for anybody and everybody who trusts in Him, the whole world round. Now, one of the biggest challenges that the early church faced was how to graft Gentile Christians, believers from other ethnic groups, into a church family that began as primarily Jewish because the Jews had been the ones who had been like the guardians of the Scriptures. The Jews had been the ones through whom the Messiah had come. And it was difficult to, to make, to bridge the gap because a lot of the ceremonial law that God had given in the Old Testament was designed to keep the Jews from being tainted by the Gentiles, the dietary restrictions, the, all, all kinds of things that, that God had them doing was to keep them separate. And, and when the gospel is given and Jesus comes on the scene, that wall is broken down. And the apostles deal with it, for instance, in Acts 15, and they, they reduce uh, all the demands on Gentile believers to really staying away from idolatry and practices that were associated with idolatry, but not keeping all the, all the dietary laws and ceremonial laws. And, and the New Testament explicitly de deals with that theme. We're going to actually see this tonight in our study in Ephesians 2, how, how Christ has abolished that wall of hostility and made us one man uh, reconciled to God. So, the great commission that Christ is going to give to reach all ethnicities demands that these barriers be removed. It, it demands that people cross lines that before were barriers to them. When we share the gospel, we don't know who will believe. We don't know who's going to become a Christian brother or sister. So, we treat even unbelievers with kindness and love as those who have not trusted Jesus yet. They're future members of your forever family. We don't treat them as enemies. And that can be hard to do, especially if they're mistreating you, especially if they are treating you as an evildoer. But the New Testament over and over again talks about this and, and how, how we're to, you know, slaves that had, had difficult masters were still supposed to obey them and still supposed to show them honor and, and how... Even when people said evil things about you, you were supposed to prove them wrong by the way you shined in your life. And this is the new commandment to love. It's a commandment that's self-sacrificing like Jesus. It's a commandment that's empowered by God himself and those that belong to Jesus. It's a commandment that reaches wide as the world. 
Now, as we think about that, it sounds great. I mean, you know, it sounds like that 1970s, was it Coca-Cola commercial? I always think of it, you know, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. Everybody with candles and everybody's kind of swaying. And <laughs> I think in our heart of hearts, that's actually what we want as human beings. And the problem is we can't get there because of our sinfulness and our selfishness. But where we ought to get there is among the people of God who have the life of God in their souls and have come to know Jesus. And so that tells us, you know, how is this even possible? We are, we are naturally sinful. That means we're naturally selfish. I mean, even as a born-again believer, it is not difficult for me to be selfish. And it doesn't matter if you have been called to be, you know, a pastor. You're supposed to, you know, everybody knows pastors are supposed to be nice to people. They're supposed to show care for people. And yet, how many times I have to, like, Drew, don't protect yourself. Help this person. Make that difficult phone call. Make that visit. Oh, but I wanted to do something else. No, forget it. Just do this. And, and it's a constant battle. And I don't think that's unique to pastors. I, I think we all go through this struggle. I mean, we go through this struggle in marriage, don't we? I remember my early... I, honey, I don't think I told you this before, but... <laughs> in, in the early days of marriage, you know, you're, you know, we know love conquers all, and we're thinking primarily romance, but when it comes right down to it, it, it comes down to, will I choose to love my wife today? in a way that's not just looking out for me? Will I choose to give up myself for her? Will I give up my plans? Will I give up my time? Will I give her a listening ear? Will, will I change what I really was focused on for myself in order to pay attention to her and her needs? And I remember as a, a young newlywed at kind of dawning on me. I have to decide on this. I can't, I, I'm, I'm, I've got to decide whether I'm going to love my wife in, in reality. And I think we're called to do this in every, this is what we find as parents, right? You're, you're parenting your kids and, you know, cute little cuddly kid, and then you start getting, they start training you. They start training you how to get up in the middle of the night. Uh, this is the way you know what new, new parents are. They're the ones with dark circles under their eyes. And they keep training you in all their different phases. And just when you think you've got it down, they do a change-up on you. And you rear one kid, and then the next kid is completely different. And, and it keeps calling you to sacrifice yourself, to give, give your money and your time and, your, and, and control your temper and all kinds of things that it puts you through in order to show genuine love to your kids. Well, how is this possible? The key is that it's in him. The key is that it's in your connection to Jesus Christ, his indwelling you, his enabling you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ has redeemed you with his own lifeblood. Christ has regenerated you through the Spirit. 
Christ has reconciled you to the God who is light and who is love. So let the light of God dispel your natural darkness and let it shine. And that leads us to verses 9 through 11, this test of love. A test of love. You've got an old commandment made new. In verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We see that theme that he keeps returning to, whoever says. We've seen this pattern before. The test of a person's Christian identity is not just what he says, it's what he does. True Christianity cannot be mere talk. Some of us are better at talking than others. Some of us are philosophers by nature, and we'll philosophize all over the world. And that's great. There's a role for philosophy, but question is not what you say, but what you do. Some of us are very, are very gifted at communicating or singing or doing beautiful things, saying beautiful things. That's not the test. What do you do? What do you do? What actions verify a person's profession of knowing Jesus? Well, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Now, whoever says that he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. That's the same as saying abiding in him. You're remaining, you're staying, you're close. You've got a vital connection to Jesus. This is how come your life is fruitful, according to John 15. Without him, you can't do anything. In him, in this one who loves his brother, there is no cause for stumbling. The closeness to Jesus, as evidenced by love for his brother, sheds light on his path so he knows where to walk. He's not tripping up because the light enables him to see where he's going. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. There's all kinds of sins. There's all kinds of sins you can avoid if you will keep your focus on this basic command. And if you won't keep your focus on this basic command, there's no limit to the kinds of sins you will commit against other people. And, and a lot of it may even be by accident. A lot of it will be you don't even realize what you're doing. But it's, but it's because you're so self-centered, you can't imagine the good that you could be doing. And instead, you just do what comes natural. By contrast, whoever hates his brother, and hatred doesn't have to mean that you utterly despise or loathe the person. It's, it's just that you treat the person in a way that's contrary to love. It would look like slander or deceit or abuse or disdain or dismissiveness or belittling or ignoring or disregarding or not leaving something for the poor and the sojourner or, you know, all those things that we learned from, from way back in Leviticus. It's sinning against another human being in any way that doesn't match his being made in God's image and, and then particularly those redeemed by Christ. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. You move among those that are princes and princesses 
They are sons and daughters of the King of Heaven. Remember when husbands are called in 1 Peter 3 to live with their wife in an understanding way, not be harsh, but to treat them as a, a the weaker vessel, vulnerable, and, and says, if you fail to do this, your prayers are hindered. Like, don't, don't think that you've got a great relationship with God if, if you're not treating your wife in this understanding way. You don't. You don't. There, there's... You can't treat another person that way and also be close to God. And if you're close to God, that will inform and shape how you treat other people. Love fulfills the law. That's what the New Testament writers tell us. Love doesn't sin against another person. So whoever hates his brother is in the darkness. This is the atmosphere he's living in. He's walking in darkness. That is, his walk about life, the things that he does, are dark. He, he doesn't know where he's going. And, and this, is, you know, this is like a finger in the eye of the Gnostics who prided themselves in their elite knowledge that they were so much smarter than everybody else. And, and John is saying, you're ignorant. You don't even know where you're going. This has practical consequences. So... Forget your superior knowledge. You're ignorant of even where you are. You, you can't see where you're going. Darkness has blinded his eyes. Well, God has given such a person to perceive what's around him. The, the eyes don't work. You know, you can, you can be in the light, but if your eyes don't work, you're in the dark. The light can be shining, it could be self-evident, but if you're blind, you can't see it. And though Christ has shown the light of the gospel to the world, those that live this way show that darkness has blinded their eyes. They can't even see. They stumble. Now, John's words are reminiscent of what God says in Proverbs 4. I was just reading this earlier this week but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. So you think about as the sun just comes over the horizon and, and, and the sunlight runs its way like rivers across the, the gray landscape, and then as the, the sun rises further, everything starts to brighten up. You start to see color. That's the way the path of the righteous is. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness like you're in a deep cave of total blackness, they do not know over what they stumble. A person may be very religious. He may know many Bible verses. He may even have a disciplined lifestyle, but if he lacks love for others, he is still in darkness. And this kind of religious blindness characterized many of the leaders in first century Judaism. It characterized the false religious teachers and philosophers of John's day. And love is still the test today. For instance, the Pharisees believed the Bible was inerrant. They tithed. They, they tried to keep separate from the prevailing Greek culture that dominated the world at the time. But they looked down on others and they hated Jesus. Why? Because they hated God. His light exposed the hypocrisy, that it was all a charade, it was all a game. 
It was all a good old boy society, but they were blind, and they refused to admit it. When Jesus heals the man born blind, he says, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, remember, whoever says, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. There's some point at which I have to realize that apart from Jesus, I'm blind. That apart from Jesus, I'm in the dark. That, that apart from Jesus, I can't have fellowship with God. As long as I think I'm an all-seeing kind of person, I'll remain blind. I've got to know my need. What John is teaching is what Jesus taught. And what Christ and his apostles taught was the proper application of what the Old Testament taught. The new command is the old command clarified, and as such, whether we love our brothers or sisters or not reveals our true state, whether we are in the light or still in the darkness. Listen how Paul, and I got it right this time, how Paul describes this in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We make all kinds of missteps when we walk in darkness. So let God's love shine on your path. And let love that he's put in your own soul shine from your life. And you'll be able to see the path. You'll not only bring blessing to others, you will keep from stumbling yourself. An old commandment to love, a new commandment to love, the test of love. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and now the test is the same. Love shines. So as we finish up, what situations tempt you to respond in an unloving way? What difficulties are calling you to shine? to bring the light of love to the situation. Let me encourage you today, this Lord's Day, to spend a little time meditating on what your life would look like if, if this dominated its character. And, and breaking it down into what it looks like with all the relationships that you have. And and then making it your mission to bring Jesus glory because you're in him, because this love is in you. And wherever you go, 
it just spills out. And people that know you are loved. They're beloved. And people see Jesus in you as a shepherd of love. Let's pray. God, these are high-sounding words. Far easier for me to say than to live. I pray that for the glory of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, you would let our love shine. May it grow. May it dispel the darkness. We thank you that the darkness is passing, that the light, the true light is already shining. And I pray that it would shine more and more to the perfect day. For it's in Christ's name we pray.